Good morning, Evangel. You should high-five each other because you're the ones that are true Montrealers who made it through the snow and the weather to get to church today. So props to you. I'm just giving you props. High-five somebody beside you and go, you made it, you made it, you made it. Go ahead and do that. It's, it's such a good day, and I just love, um, I love that the sun's out, and I love that it's winter, and I love that, that God is good, and it's a good day. Yeah? Yeah. Jeff and I were away last weekend. Some of you were wondering where we were. And I just, I just had to tell you that last weekend, um, we were in Ontario just for like 36 hours. And, uh, and we, we left last Saturday and drove back to my family's home in Hamilton, Ontario in order to celebrate with my parents because it was their wedding anniversary. And do you know how many years it was? 50. 50 years, five decades. And I'm the one, you know, I'm the sibling that has to make the speech because they figure that's what I do for a living. So, right. What do you say about 50 years? I just, it was such a, it was so um, huge for me to be able to just honor our parents and go, you, you have, you have spent a lifetime. Uh, and, and this is the legacy that, that I have passed down to me now and the heritage that Jeff and I have. And uh, 50 years married, and they still love each other. So that's also a plus. And um, so, we, so we drove down there Saturday and had dinner with the family on Saturday night and then drove back on Sunday. So, But it's nice to be back here at Evangel. It's good to be back. This is the moment when if you have a smartphone or a tablet, you want to open your Evangel app. And you can find in there all of the announcements that Pastor Tim just made. And you can also find the notes for this morning's message. And you can follow along there if you want to. And, um, and that's what we're going to do. So here's, here's how, what I want to do this morning, okay? You ready? Shh. Okay. Close your eyes. Now you're all staring back at me. I can see. Cl- watch. I'll close my eyes. Now you close yours. Close your eyes. Shh, shh. Close your eyes. Have you noticed? And some of you right now are going, oh, I was here New Year's Eve. She did this New Year's Eve. It's good. This is good. And I want you to just take a deep breath. In. Let it out. Settle back in your seats. Open your eyes. Some of you are going, I never closed them. Look around. Turn your head. Look at the people around you. Go ahead. Turn your head. There's people around you. Okay? Your home. Welcome home. Welcome home. It's good that you're here. It's good that I... Now, some of you are going, actually, I'm just visiting. It's my first, my first time here. I've never been here before. That's okay. You're home. While you're here, this is home for you. And, and some of you, you've moved away, but you happen to be back today, and you're here whenever you're in town, and I just want you to know, you're home too. Welcome home. I'm glad you're here. So, some of you have been here for decades, and for, for 50 years, or 89 years, or however long you've been here, some of you, and you definitely know this is your home. And, and some of you, you've just been here a short time, or you're only going to be here temporarily. You're here for maybe three or four months for school or for a work contract. But you, you're home, whoever you are, and wherever you've, you're from, and, and however long you're going to be here. Here's, here's what I want you to hear this morning. Just, just settle back and just relax because you're home. Welcome home. Now, 
I want to start a new series today, and it's going to take us for several months through the year in 2018. We're going to start a new Sunday morning series, and, and I just want to set the scene for it a little bit this morning. So, so today's going to be just sort of a big picture, setting the scene for that kind of thing. And what we're going to do is we're going to look in the Bible, in the New Testament, at some of the letters that are written there. Now, lots of us have our Bibles on our smartphones or uh, wherever, digital Bibles or whatever. Some of us still have paper versions. This is one of my paper versions. And so if you're not as familiar with the Bible, as others might be, the Bible is divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is the part, simplistically, before Jesus. And the New Testament starts with the story of Jesus and then continues on with everything after that. So, so the letters we're going to look at are in the New Testament, and they are after the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. They are letters that were written to the very first churches that were formed after, after Jesus died and rose from the dead. So, for example, you're going to see letters like 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Philemon, or James, or First and Second Peter. Now, when we read these in the Bible, we often look at it in a Bible like this or in a, you know, black one or a digital one, whatever you have. And, and we look at it and we go, oh, that's scripture. It's the word of God. And it's, it's sacred. And, and it is. It is absolutely no question. This is the word of God. And we are so grateful to God for giving it. But you also need to understand that, that these letters that were written before they were the sacred, holy, mysterious word of God that we seem to understand now, they were letters. Now, some of you, if you're under 40, you've forgotten what a letter is. They were emails, okay? Some of you are under 30, and you don't know what an email is, so they were texts. Whatever you want to use for the form of communication, these were actual letters, actual written things that were sent from one person to another, from real people, and usually they weren't sent to a, to a person, but they were sent to a group of people, and so usually they were sent to a church, and that church didn't look like this one. It would be like maybe 30 people, and they would be together in somebody's household, and so it would be sent to, they would meet together in this household, or, and the letter would be sent there, or it would be sent to a number of different maybe household churches in a region, or it would be sent to the leader of a church, but it was to be read publicly within the church so that everybody could hear it. And these letters would be sent from somebody called an apostle, which really just means big cheese. They're one of the big people, one of the important ones that, that were the you know founders, beginners, disciples of Jesus, leaders of the churches. And so the ones that we're going to look at, there's a bunch of letters in the New Testament, and the ones that we're going to look at tended to be named after the person who wrote the letter. So 1 John, 2 John, 3 John were written by, guess, John, there you go, okay? First Peter and Second Peter were written by, see, now you're with it, and, and, and James was written by Bob, no, James, so it was written by the person who wrote the letter. But now, now then there's other letters in the New Testament, and we're not going to look as much at those in this series, but they were written by Paul, and Paul wrote a lot of letters, and if we just numbered all his letters as Paul, there would be like 102 of them, and so we, those ones are named for the, the place they went to. So the letter from Paul to the city of Ephesus was called Ephesians, and the letter from Paul to the city of Philippi, to the church in Philippi, was called Philippians, and it goes on. So that just helps you understand a little bit. And these letters were, were deeply treasured. 
and they were preserved and they were circulated around among the churches. And of course, there were originally there would have been more letters than these, and some some of the letters that we have in the in the New Testament refer to letters that we maybe don't have anymore. And and over time, these are the letters, the ones in our Bibles, these are the letters that were saved and were preserved. And they were verified by the early church leaders, the earliest church leaders. They were verified as authentic in, in their writing and authentic in the truth that they gave. And, and we absolutely believe and trust. It's a big part of our faith that we trust that God also guided that process. And so for centuries, these have been the letters that have been included in the Bible. These are part of God's word. They help to make up our sacred text as followers of Jesus. Now just pause and go, isn't that incredible? Isn't it amazing that we hold in our hands or on our smartphones or in a digital form or whatever it is that you're looking at, isn't it amazing that we hold this ancient teaching just so casually in our hands? It's so, it's available to us. And it's this, it's sacred and it's holy and it's mysterious and it is the word of God and so essential to our faith, all these things, yes. But initially, we have to remember they were letters. And they were written by real people to real churches in a very real world. And so in order to understand those letters and understand where they're coming from and, and how they matter today, we have to understand how they mattered then so that we can, so that we can make the meaning kind of transfer and understand what's being said. Now, let me just give you a little bit of an example of this, of, of how things, so uh, every now and then during the week, our staff actually manages to all eat lunch at the same time. And so there was a point this week when we were eating lunch together, we all landed in the boardroom at about, you know, for about 20 minutes together. And, and we have a very multicultural staff and a multilingual staff, just like our congregation is. And so that's very fun. And so sometimes we get in these great conversations. And so somebody on our staff, we were all eating lunch together, and one person, and their first language is not English, said, hey, I heard this phrase, and I don't know what it means. What does it mean to throw out the baby with the bathwater? <laughs> and I stopped and thought, well, that is a weird thing to say if you're not used to that kind of phrase. And so we talked about that. Another one of our staff said, well, you know, the origin is that back in the day, whenever the day was and wherever this was, a family would take turns taking a bath and they would use the same water one after another. And the baby's the last one to get bath. And so the theory is the water's so dirty, you can't even see the baby. You accidentally just throw out the whole thing, right? Which is a weird thought. It's kind of weird. And so now when we say, well, don't just throw out don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. We mean, well, don't, don't just toss out a whole idea because part of it isn't good. There still may be something valuable in there, okay? And then I got thinking after we had that conversation over our staff lunch, and I thought about these other phrases that we sometimes use. So how many have ever heard the phrase, pig in a poke? Anybody? Anyway, there were two in the, in the first service. Okay, so my grandparents used to say this, and you're not supposed to buy a pig in a poke, and my best understanding of that is don't buy a pig that's in a bag of some kind or wrapped up, and you can't see what it looks like because you might get ripped off. You need to know the value of what you're buying. You need to inspect it, and you need to check it. Or sometimes somebody would say, uh, you know, so-and-so, well, they're really trying, but he just doesn't cut the mustard. Just can't do the job. Just can't quite be successful. 
I don't know what that has to do with cutting mustard, but it's a thing that, that people say. And then um, so we, sometimes there's this phrase where we say, well, you know, he's barking up the wrong tree. She's barking up the wrong tree. That's a weird thing to say about somebody, that there's somebody barking up a tree. And, and apparently that, that phrase came from, um, if, you have, if you have a hunting dog, not a hunter. I'm just saying this right now. I don't, I don't know. But you have a hunting dog, and you, and you let the hunting dog go, and it's chasing, you know, whatever its prey is, let's say, I don't know, a rabbit or something that runs up a tree, and probably not a rabbit. So it's chasing along, whatever's chasing, and that thing runs up a tree, and the dog's at the base of the tree going, right here, right here, this thing you're looking for is right here. But meanwhile, this prey has jumped to another tree, and maybe another one, and it's just gone off. It's in Toronto by now. And the dog is still at the base of the tree barking, and now we use it to say, you know, you're, you're emphasizing the wrong thing. You're, you're making a big deal about this thing, and it doesn't even matter anymore. Or sometimes we use the phrase, somebody ran out of steam while they're working on a project. And we go, well, you know, that, that means they ran out of energy or they lost their focus and they just kind of didn't really finish what they started. But actually it's referring to a 19th century steam engine. And so if you don't know these things, then you're going to miss on some of the meaning of what's happening. So imagine if centuries from now, Somebody reads a text that I wrote or an email that I wrote or something, and I used the phrase, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> Imagine if somebody sees that a few centuries from now, and they look back and they go, well, it was clearly common practice in that time and place for people to throw out babies with bathwaters. Like, no, that's not the case. So you have to know what a letter meant to the first ri- to the first readers, what it meant to the first writers. You have to understand what it meant to them so that we can understand what it means for us. So this is not, our Bibles are not just a mysterious, sacred text that, that is holy and, and, you know, away from us. It didn't just drop down from heaven. It wasn't just delivered by angels and handed over. This, our sacred text was written by real people, inspired by the Holy Spirit, guided by God, and God made sure that what they wrote was preserved. But it was real people, two real people, living real lives in a real world and serving a real God. And once we understand that, and we understand who these people were, then we can understand why it matters to us and how it matters. Because we also, at least me, we are real people, hello, living real lives in a real world, serving a real God. Anyone else here a real person? Good. Okay. And so recalling this series that we're starting, Real Life, Real World, Real God. It's going to take us through part of 2018. Now, I, I wanted to give you that piece. Now, let me give you another piece because there's another, another piece to this series, a part of the framework that I want you to understand and I want you to know where it's coming from. Okay. Almost entirely, these letters, as I said, were not written to one specific individual. They were written by one individual with the help of the Holy Spirit, but they were written to a group of Christians. And, and, and the group of Christians would be an identifiable group of followers of Jesus who met together regularly. An identifiable group of followers of Jesus who met together regularly. That's a church. <laughs> okay. 
That's a church. And so more than one church or a church is who these letters would be written to. And it's important that you know that, that these letters were written to groups of people and to churches because we live in a very, very individualistic culture. And so we have a tendency, if we're North American today and we're in the culture that we're in, we have a tendency to open up the Bible and go, what's in it for me? What does this have to say to me as an individual? And, and, we, and, and it's good and it's important to essentially to own your own faith. That matters. You, every single person needs to have an individual sense of I belong to Jesus. I am a follower of Jesus. I am owning my faith. But sometimes we tend to take that too far. And we end up separating from the church. We end up separating from other followers of Jesus because we think it's not that important. And it is. And I'm not talking about the institution or the bureaucracy or whatever you want to call it, or even the building specifically of the church, but I'm talking about being a follower of Jesus and connecting with other followers of Jesus regularly as part of our faith. A a group of people who's identifiable as a group and who meets together regularly. Now, I recognize that as I say that, I'm preaching to the choir here which is another one of those sayings, and it means I'm talking to the ones who already know because you're here, okay? But indulge me. And, and so there's no, there's no context in the New Testament for being a follower of Jesus all on your own. There's no context for that. There's no, nothing in the New Testament, no space in the New Testament for just being, it's just me and Jesus. I don't have to connect with any other Christians. I don't need to connect with any other followers of Jesus. Totally disconnected. If we had tried to say that to those first Christians in the early churches, they would have gone, what? That's, well, that's not right. They would have been completely bewildered by that because our faith is, is a communal faith as well as an individual faith. And, and so these letters that we're looking at are written to communities of faith that are made up of individual people of faith. And it was written to people that felt like some of them felt like they had always belonged to that community of faith. And some of them were brand new, but all of them were home. And that, that's important. Now, a few weeks ago, I mentioned in one of Paul's letters called Romans, I mentioned that early in his letter to the Romans, it's still in the dear friends part of the letter, he, he wrote this, this sentence. Romans chapter 1 verse 6, he said, you know, dear friends, this is who I'm writing to, la 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 la, and you are included among those Gentiles who have been, say it with me, called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, only three of you said it, and you got to say it out loud. Okay, we're going to do it again. And you are included among those Gentiles who have been called to belong to Jesus Christ. Now, that, that's a huge shift. And, and, and you need to understand that because part of the huge shift that happened for these early Christians, Christianity, Jesus, being a follower of Jesus, started, it began, for what it looked like to them, as an offshoot of Judaism. Jesus was Jewish. He was the Jewish Messiah. And Judaism was an exclusive faith. You were, you were born into it. And your family was in it. And it was part of your ethnicity. And it was who you were until you died. And, and Gentiles who were non-Jews, anybody that's not a Jew, Gentiles could convert... And they could participate somewhat if they wanted to be Jewish. But there were always some limitations. You were never fully in. Jesus changed that. 
Jesus changed that. And, and you know, to be fair, it took, it took a while for the early church to figure that out. And so they, it took them a while to go, so anybody can belong? Anybody is called every, I mean, they knew that there was this ancient promise to Abraham of all nations will be blessed through you. And they knew that, and it was all nations. And and they were excited about that, but they didn't really know that that meant that the exclusivity of their faith would shift to an inclusivity. and, And it meant that we could belong. All of us could belong. I can belong. You could belong. We, we would all be fully called not to be a guest, not to be a customer, not to be a client. We would all be fully called to belong. Called to belong to God and called to belong to the community and the family of God. So, shh, settle back. Take a deep breath, in, out, and look around you at the people around you. Go ahead, turn your head. You belong. I belong. You are called to belong. You belong to God, and you are called to belong along with all of us. You you are not a guest. You are not a customer. You are not a client of evangel. You, you're family. You belong. You're home. Welcome home. So now, ideally, home is where there is safety and there is belonging, and there is togetherness, and there is life. And we talked a little bit about that on New Year's Eve, and we said home is where there's traditions, and sometimes those traditions change because nothing stays frozen in time, and so some stay and some evolve. And we said, you know, even the people change of home. Over time, people pass away. New people are born. Uh, some people move away, and so they're still family, but they're, they're further away. And others move from somewhere far away, and they come here and they become part of our family and it becomes home. And home carries privilege and it carries responsibility. So ideally home is is where you sleep. You have a place to sleep and you have a place to eat and you have a place to rest. But you're also supposed to, you know, make the bed and help wash the dishes. And you just feel free to elbow the person next to you right right now. Just go, she said to help wash the dishes. Okay? That's home. Home uh, carries this idea of community. That, that you're not just alone, but you're rubbing shoulders with each other. And one person cooks, and another one shovels snow. And then you look at each other and go, how was your day? And then you, have, you, you, you compromise on what Netflix show you're going to watch that night. And home, ideally, is a place of, of kindness and love. And sometimes it's a place of weeping. And sometimes it's a place of laughing. And sometimes home is where you support and you help each other. And when, it, when we're talking about followers of Jesus, home is where we're learning and we're worshiping together. And home is where we're giving each other safe space. And home is where we rub the sharp edges off each other. Because even though each one of us is delightful... We also have some rough edges, and home is where those things get rubbed off. And, and sometimes home is where there's loving honesty and there's correction because there's safe space to do that. Sometimes you have your own corner, 
and sometimes there's shared space. But while you're here, and while you're part of Evangel, you are home. You are welcome to invite others home, because why wouldn't you? You are not a customer. You're not a guest. You belong here. You're home. It's part of being a community of faith. It's part of being a follower of Jesus. So, we're looking at these letters that, that were written to these communities of faith, to these churches. And they're a group of people that were like us in many ways. So it's after the life and, and death and resurrection of Jesus. And um, it's, it's these first churches that were planted. And Acts, if you read the book of Acts, which we're not going to in this series, but you can on your own. If you read the book of Acts, A-C-T-S, then you can read the story of the early spread of how the story of Jesus got spread and the faith of following. Jesus got spread and how these different churches got started. Now, Acts tends to hit the high points, you know, the really big stories like, and then Peter stood on a street corner and he just preached a sermon and bam, 5,000 people got saved that day. It was awesome, right? And, and it tells the stories like that, these really high point, big stories. And it would be easy to think that, that those stories are entirely the way things were, that that's all that happened. Every day they got up and went, well, let's find another street corner and Peter's going to preach a sermon and bam, 5,000 people are going are gonna to become followers of Jesus. It didn't happen like that all the time because the letters show, when we start reading the letters, we start realizing there was a whole lot of real life that happened in between those high points. A whole lot of regular life that happened in between those high points because it's real life and these new Christians lived in a real world and they were serving a real God. And in some ways, they actually weren't so different from us. There's actually a lot of similarities for some of these things. So, so when we look at the, uh, Jesus, Jesus moved around the Palestinian countryside and kind of visited villages and was on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and eventually made his way to Jerusalem. But most of his time was spent in a little bit more uh, countryside kind of setting. But within 10 years, they figure of Jesus' death and resurrection, within 10 years, the gospel had moved from Palestinian villages to Roman cities, Greco-Roman cities. And so the early churches who were receiving these letters we're going to look at, they were in cities. So they were urban. Anybody here recognize an urban context? Anyone at all? Urban means city. We're in Montreal, okay? They were urban. They, they had a high-density population. They lived in probably very small homes unless they were quite rich. And if they were quite rich, they were probably one of the ones with a bigger home that was hosting the church and having the church over in their home. And so there was a lot. But the rest of them all lived in squished spaces, tiny little apartments or homes or whatever. And so they would hang out sometimes in the public spaces, the open places, kind of like we hang out in coffee shops. And so they were very urban. They were very mobile, the context of the early churches and the first Christians, because the Roman empire was known for having a good network of roads and the roads were well maintained and they went to the right places. There were trade routes. People moved along them from place to place. They moved sometimes from city to city. And so as they do that, the gospel message gets carried to the next city. A little bit like people go between Montreal and Toronto fairly frequently. That was the kind of thing that would happen. So they were mobile. They also were quite connected with the people around them. Archaeologists have discovered in some of the cities where these letters were written, all 
all kinds of evidence of different associations that happen. People would gather for any reason at all. So you would have an association based around uh, what kind of work you did. So if you were an artisan or you were a carpenter, there were associations for those things. Or there were associations based on ethnicity. So if somebody came from, from another country and they moved to Ephesus, well, they would find other people that also came from their home country in Ephesus so they could gather together with them. They would get together for all kinds of things. And so Christians got together kind of along the same lines, but they also had networks and connections all over that were just part of their natural, regular connections in the city based on their work or based on their ethnicity or based on whatever. Uh, It was very diverse. The context of these early churches and the first Christians, very diverse. There were rich people. There were poor people. There was everything in between. It was very multicultural, uh, multilingual. Uh, If you went, if you looked at the language of the context, you would see that there was, there was Greek was spoken in the cities, but outside of the cities, not so much. Outside of the cities, it was maybe a little more Aramaic or whatever in different dialects and different villages. And the culture of the city was very, very different from the culture of the outlying areas. And so that's the area that they were in. And, and the context that these churches were in tended to be, if they were in cities, very, there was a good sense of stability. So there were taxes, of course, but they were the kind of taxes that helped to pay for the services that you need, and they were fairly stable taxes. And people had access to justice in the court system. Some people had access to education. Not everyone, but some did. Um, People had, there was a basic security. The government was stable, and rich people were encouraged to invest in their communities. So, So the life, if you look at this, The life of those first Christians of those early churches was urban, multicultural, multilingual, highly mobile, diverse in in social status and education and economic status, diverse in education, diverse in career, and lived within a stable society that paid taxes and didn't particularly support faith but didn't fight it all that hard unless it disrupted the government or the society. Does that sound familiar to anyone at all? Does that context sound familiar? Raise your hand if you go, yes, that does sound mildly. They're not so different from us in many ways. And and eventually history changed and persecution erupted, and that has continued at different times and places through church history, and I'm not devaluing that at all or discounting it. But at its very beginnings, that wasn't always the story. These were churches, and they were filled with individuals who were living out their faith in community together while reaching out to the community outside through their basic connections and networks. And little by little, the gospel message spread until this movement that had started as a tiny regional movement 2,000 years ago is now a major global faith, and we're part of that. That's kind of cool. And so here we are today, and we're an inside-out church, and we say, well, we do good, and we love each other, and we reveal Jesus. And when we say that, can I just tell you that to me, when I'm talking about doing good and loving each other and revealing Jesus and being an inside-out church, we're talking about the real life that happens between the high points. Every church in its history, every church and around the world, you have your high points when there's just these, bam, huge 
huge moments or, or revival hits and, and everything changes and it's amazing. But there's always life that is lived out between those high moments when we are called to live as followers of Jesus. And we do good. We love each other. We reveal Jesus. And when we talk about it, we go, eh, it's what we do. It's just, it's just the life of living together as the community of the church. And somebody says to me, Patty, we know this. Could you, why do you keep saying this? You know, inside out church, you've made us repeat it together. Do good, love each other, reveal Jesus. We know it's a really cute slogan. You know, it's not a slogan. Listen, it's not just a little slogan. This really matters because I believe that if we the church are actually functioning the way we're supposed to, people will meet Jesus. People will be welcomed home if we are being and doing who we're supposed to be and do. That's what happened in the early church, and that's what we look for today. So we do good, and we love each other, and we reveal Jesus. And somebody goes, yes, and those are all separate departments. They're not connected. So, Patty, this activity that we're doing, is it doing good or is it loving each other? Listen, they're not, they're not separate departments, okay? I'm going to let you in on a secret. When we do good at Evangel, when we do good out there and we, we serve our community or we hold a barbecue in Cabot Square or we put on a, a Super Bowl party so that it can be a family-friendly party outreach for people in our community, when we give gifts to condos, when we hold a family fun festival, I don't know if you've noticed, but we end up doing it together. And we create shared memories and we create shared experiences together and we experience the excitement of going, we did that. We did this. This is awesome. This is who we are as a church. So secretly, even though we're doing good, secretly loving each other is part of that. Oh, I didn't know that, right? And, and on the other hand, when we say we love each other, we don't go, well, we love each other and we're not doing good today. When we love each other, for example, when we do fifth Sundays, we tend to focus a lot on the love each other piece of our congreg- of our church and what we do. And so on fifth Sundays, we cheer for those who have been baptized. And we go, woo, and we support for the parents that are dedicating their children to God. And we welcome new people into membership. And then we, we take communion together and we break into little groups and we pray together and we put on name tags and we talk to each other and get to know each other's names. And, and when we do that, we're loving each other each other, but we're also sending a strong message to any visitor that happens to be here or any newcomer or anybody in our community that happens to notice. We're sending a strong message that this is a safe community and that it's open to anyone. And so secretly, we're doing good even as we love each other. And Jesus is revealed through those things. If we try to separate those things, if we go, well, we're going to do good, but let's not have any of that loving each other stuff. Well, then we're going to go out there and we're going we're gonna to do good, do some good deeds for our world. And it's going to be cold, without heart, just some sort of program. I mean, it's no better than a government social program. Ugh. And, and if, we, if we say, well, I'm, we're just going to love each other, but we're going to do it in a way that excludes everybody else. It's just for the ones on the inside. We're not doing anything good outside of ourselves. I hate to break it to you, but churches do that all the time. And it makes us self-involved, and it makes us stale, and it makes us 
break into little cliques where not everybody can fit in. And, and then when that happens, eventually conflict erupts because we're all driving each other crazy. Ugh. I don't want to be part of that. And so we bring it all together, but if we do all of it and we do good and we love each other, at the same time we become an inside-out church, we let the whole world see who we are, and we say, why don't you come in? Why don't you come home with where we are? And we invite others to belong with us naturally and organically through our own networks and through our own. And if we're doing all of that, then people see Jesus. Church is a gathering, an identifiable gathering of a group of followers of Jesus. We meet together to worship and encourage each other and to learn. And historically, there are moments when we have high points, like in Acts, where it's just amazing and everything changes. But historically, the church grows most of the time through organic, natural connections as the church of Jesus Christ is doing and being what it's supposed to do and be. Each one of us takes it outside of our own church. One by one by one is how it grows. People find faith. People find Jesus. We carry Jesus out there to our schools and our workplaces and our families one at a time. And people find home just through the regular life of a church. And a healthy church will grow. We're real people. Anybody here a real person? Living a real life. Serving a real God. And we are called to belong. You are called to belong. We are home. We are home in this community of faith. And we are revealing Jesus as we welcome others home. I'm going to ask if you would stand at this moment. Would you stand with me? And, and turn to somebody beside you and just say to them, hey, you're home. Go ahead, tell them, you're home. And then, and then turn to somebody else and go, you belong. I belong. Go ahead, say it right out loud. You belong. And turn to a third person and just say, you know, welcome home. Just welcome home. And here's what I want to do today, and, and, and it's how we're going to end our service, and it is how we ended, um, we, we did this on New Year's Eve, and a bunch of you were given cards, and some of you have them on your fridge, and maybe there's extra ones in the lobby, I don't know, but we're going to have it on the screens, but it was this prayer that we prayed together on New Year's Eve, and we're going to pray it again this morning, and it is a prayer that just recognizes this, this home that God has given us together, all of us as the community of faith, and invites others to join us and invites us to follow God together as community and welcoming others into our midst. So we're going to pray it together. It's on the screens. I'm going to ask if we can pray it slow, let each phrase settle in, and then we'll close our service. God in heaven, thank you for my church. Pray that with me, would you? God in heaven, thank you for my church. Thank you that it is home. In 2018 at Evangel, remind me to be thankful for our past. Remind me to dream and pray for our future. But most of all, remind me 
to make our church feel like home for as many as possible so that people can meet Jesus, so that we can welcome them home. Amen. And so, God, as we close our service today, together we pray this simple prayer, thanking you for the home that you have created in our church. And, God, each one of us is going to walk out of here now to our natural connections, just like people did in that early first church. And we're going to walk out to be with coworkers this week. We're going to be with family this week. We're going to be in classes this week. We're going to be shoveling out snow with our neighbors this week. And we're asking that as we do that through those just natural connections and regular conversations, would you give us God moments where we can carry Jesus well and we can do good in those spaces and we can love people in those spaces and we can reveal Jesus so that, God, we can invite people home and invite them to know you. Help us to go out there and do that this week. Then I ask that you would bring us back safely and well next Sunday. Come back home ready to worship you with the rest of your family. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here today. Make sure you talk to a couple people on your way out. Grab a coffee downstairs if you want. And uh, have a fantastic week. We'll see you next Sunday.